This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Welcome all of you to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Steve Puglis, who co-authored a paper that's entitled The Post-Pulmonary Embolism Syndrome, Real or Ruse, published in the Annals. So Dr. Puglis is an assistant professor of clinical medicine in the Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Division at the University of Pennsylvania. He also serves as the director of the Pulmonary Embolism Response Team and co-director of the Chronic Thromboembolic Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Puglis and I will be discussing the entity of persistent dyspnea following an acute pulmonary embolism, something that he's termed the post-PE syndrome, and we'll specifically focus on the differential diagnosis and diagnostic approach. Welcome and thank you, Dr. Puglis, for joining the podcast. I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. Uh, Greg, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to, to talk with you today. Great. So let's jump right in, Steve. So, so give us some background about the epidemiology of PE in the United States, just to set the stage for what we'll be talking about moving forward. Sure. So, uh, so PE is, is quite common. Uh, the estimates uh, for the U.S. are somewhere between 600,000 and a million patients uh, per year. Um, the the one-year mortality for these patients is about 15%. And if you uh, numbers, you know, for um, for total number of patients dying uh, per year in the United States are anywhere between two and 300,000 patients. It, it ends up being the third uh, leading cause of cardiovascular death behind stroke and MI. Um, so it's an extremely uh, important uh, disease. Yeah, and you know, and as, as, as we'll discuss, the challenge is not only manage them in the short term, but in, in a subset of patients, it's uh, the longer term management really requires specific expertise. So For Steve, sure. what, is, what is the post-pulmonary embolism syndrome? We'll start with, with the definition and we'll move on to some of the details. Sure. Um, so uh, the first thing is that there's really no accepted definition. It's kind of loosely defined. Um, this term, post-P syndrome, um, was really advanced by two uh, groups separately. So uh, Susan Kahn uh, and, and her group from Canada, as well as uh, the Netherlands group, uh, including Eric Klock and Mino Huisman, um, uh, have written about this um, extensively. And um, I think the way most people would define it would be uh, patients who have persistent dyspnea, uh, measurable exercise limitation and impaired quality of life that persists uh, for at least three months um, after receiving uh, uh, effective or therapeutic anticoagulation for acute pulmonary embolism. Now, importantly, this would exclude patients who have uh, dyspnea predating acute PE or have another explanation for their, uh, their dyspnea, like you know, congestive heart failure, COPD, et cetera. And uh, this term has really been used um, to describe um, three entities uh, of, of, of disease states, um, so to speak. So uh, within the post-P syndrome umbrella, um, the first one would be uh, CTEF, or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Um, this disease state is, uh, is uh, you know, well-described. These are patients who have chronic thrombus and um, 
on uh, invasive, you know, right heart catheterization, they have evidence of pulmonary hypertension. The second group, um, this is patients with chronic thromboembolic disease, or CTED. Um, these patients um, also have a persistent thrombus. They have persistent exercise limitation. Uh, but when you perform uh, invasive hemodynamics, they do not meet the criteria for pulmonary hypertension. So uh, the, the, their mean pulmonary artery pressure is typically defined as more than 25 millimeters of mercury for CTEF. For patients with CTEF, they might have a lower mean PA pressure, usually in the 20 or 25 range. But if you exercise them, they have evidence of pulmonary vascular disease with exercise. Or if you perform a cardiopulmonary exercise test, they have uh, um, exercise limitation, again, consistent with pulmonary vascular disease. The third group um, is really has no name. It's kind of the other patients who are dyspneic who don't have CTED and CTEF. And I've um, kind of coined this term post-PE-related uh, dyspnea um, because, uh, you know, it was kind of confusing to what to call these patients. Um, so those are the kind of the three groups of patients. Um, how I've defined in this paper the patients with post-PE-related dyspnea are really, um, you know, the patients who have persistent dyspnea exercise limitation um, but don't have evidence of uh, pulmonary vascular disease on, uh, on, on testing. And in that definition, you're, you're excluding patients that have other pulmonary diseases, correct, and other uh, potential causes of, of dyspnea in addition to having had a pulmonary embolism. Is that correct? That's right. That, that's, that's exactly correct, and that's really important. If they have uh, another uh, alternative diagnosis that precedes this or explains that, then this would not be considered uh, post pe related dyspnea. So with that as a background, and thank you for doing that, Steve, um, let's talk about the data in the literature that supports this post-PE-related dyspnea as a clinical entity. You already alluded to it earlier, but there are some larger scale trials that have addressed this, and it'll be, I think, an important context, because it sounds to me that post-PE-related dyspnea uh, is actually more common than the other two um, parts of the syndrome, the CTED and the CTEF. So take us through on this. Uh, sure. So, um, so first, there's kind of um, some observational data. Um, we know based on um, uh, both meta-analysis and single kind of observational studies that patients who have pulmonary embolism, a, a significant number, about a third of patients, um, have dyspnea. Um, yet, um, other studies have consistently shown that the incidence of at least chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, CTEF, is much lower, um, somewhere between 3 and 4%. Mm -hmm. So there's a disconnect between the number of patients that have dyspnea and the number of patients who actually have pulmonary hypertension. And so uh, probably the, the most important um, uh, group of investigators or trial that have kind of, I think, uh, put um, some substantive uh, data forward, really the PITHO investigators. So I think um, uh, probably most of the listeners um, know the PITHO trial, and this was a, a large randomized control trial looking at patients who had intermediate risk uh, or submassive PE, and they were randomized to receive uh, systemic thrombolytics um, or anticoagulation, and they were looking to see if that improved mortality or prevented decompensation. Um, this was a thousand patient trial, and as uh, everyone knows, um, while you know giving systemic lytics did improve uh, prevent decompensation, um, it was at the expense of bleeding. So 
the uh, investigators, um, importantly, ended up following these patients. So of the 1,000 patients, they were able to follow 700 patients um, over a median of uh, 37 months. And this was uh, published by Constantinides and Jack. Um, and what they found is that long-term outcomes were no different between patients who received lytics and patients who received um, anticoagulation mm -hmm. uh, for their acute presentation of PE. And so, um, and interestingly, so mortality in, in both uh, groups was about 20%. Uh, a third of patients in either group had dyspnea, and there was the same whether they got lytics or anticoagulation. Uh, a third of patients ended up having um, some evidence, uh, some subtle evidence of RV dysfunction on echocardiograms, despite most of them having normal RVSPs. Uh, right ventricular systolic pressures, um, but only about two or three percent of these patients ended up getting CTEF. So again, a lot of functional limitation, but only a small percentage of these patients have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Of course, uh, you know invasive hemodynamics, uh, you know, were not performed unless they ended up having CTEF. Um, CPETs weren't performed, so we don't really understand uh, why these patients are short of breath. So this is where the ELOPE study. Uh, picks up. So, um, so Susan Kahn um, uh, reported the ELOPE study published in CHESS in 2017, and she took uh, her group took 100 patients uh, who had their first episode of PE, and importantly, they excluded uh, patients with uh, you know congestive heart failure, or COPD, or significant COPD, and tried to exclude you know patients with significant comorbidities, and they uh, performed uh, CPAT testing, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, uh, at one month and one year. And they also did a combination of uh, VQ perfusion scanning and uh, um, uh, CT pulmonary embolism protocol CT scans um, at a variety of intervals. And what they found uh, at one year, half of patients who had a PE had a reduced exercise capacity as defined by VO2 max. And when they looked at why these patients had exercise limitation, um, about 90% of these patients were limited um, due to uh, deconditioning. Mm -hmm. um, the other 10 or 12% actually had ventilatory limitation. No patients had circulatory impairment, and almost the entire cohort had a normal RVSP uh, on TTE. <clears throat> What's really fascinating um, about this group of patients is, is as I mentioned, they also did, um, you know, CT scans and perfusion scans. So about 40% of these patients at a year uh, had some abnormal perfusion defects on CT scans. Um, but uh, there was absolutely no correlation between exercise limitation and having perfusion defects. They also looked at, used a CT scan to look at kind of other metrics of, um, you know, uh, of potentially pulmonary hypertension like PA diameter and RV to LV ratio. Again, no correlation between those and exercise limitation. And the things that actually did correlate or, or predict um, exercise limitation were uh, kind of comorbidities, so male sex, BMI, age, smoking status, et cetera. And then the, the last is a, is a small study um, published by a group at MGH um, looking at 20 patients who had either submassive or massive PE. They essentially had the same design. And again, 60% uh, of these patients had a reduced VO2 max 
none of them had um, evidence of pulmonary vascular disease or cardiac limitation, despite you know about half of these patients having some abnormal findings on echocardiogram. Mm. So you know I, I think the, this work really sets the stage for uh, you know for patients who are dysmic um, um, with you know some uh, you know some of these patients have right ventricular dysfunction, some of them have persistent thrombus. But as best as we can tell, the exercise limitation is not pulmonary vasculature based on these, you know, 120 patients or so. Yeah, so that, that was one of, the, uh, one of the interesting things about, about your paper, Stephen, about learning about this, is that this post-PE-related dyspnea doesn't appear primarily to be related to persistent pulmonary vascular dysfunction. It sounds like deconditioning um, seems to be a major driver of the symptoms. Is that correct? Is that, am I reading that correctly? Well, I, I, I think that's probably true. I, I'm really... I'm careful to ascribe all of this to deconditioning because, uh-huh. uh, you know, we're making this assertion based on essentially 120 patients who were careful, you know, who were selected. Yep. Yep. Um, but uh, I think that's probably true. Um, I, I will say what's been published in my own anecdotal experience is that a lot of these patients also do have other comorbidities. And so I think it's probably a combination of deconditioning along with, you know, whatever their underlying comorbidities that, you know, is responsible for the, the, this entity in, in most of these patients. Hmm. Okay. So in, if, in, with that as a backdrop, is, is this unique to the post pulmonary embolism patients? Um, or in your experience, is this common after other acute pulmonary illnesses in patients who don't have preexisting pulmonary comorbidities? Do yeah. you think something to speak about, about the post-PE state? Yeah, I, I got to say, um, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a, it's a good question, and I, I don't know how well it's been studied. I was just kind of, you know, trying to think about my own anecdotal experience with, you know, perhaps otherwise young, healthy people who develop a pneumonia or, you know, are in the hospital for, you know, some, mm-hmm. some type of viral syndrome. And um, I, I just don't know the answer. I mean, it you know, intuitively, you would think, yes, that this is seen in other patients, but, um, you know, I'm not aware of, of um, this being published in other, other disease states. I don't, I don't know, Greg, if, you've, if you're aware of anything. Yeah, I'm not, and that's why I asked you the question, Steve. I was hoping yeah. that you do. Um, but I've seen, you know, patients with pneumonia, especially viral pneumonias, um, over the recent past that, that have persistent symptoms that go on for a while when the radiograph is better, et cetera. But I must say, uh, and I don't see as many post-P patients as you do, it seems to be something that's a little more unique to, to, to the pulmonary, pulmonary embolism patients. But I, again, I don't think we have a lot of guidance in the literature, but it's an interesting discussion for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I mean, anecdotally, I think that it's, it's a lot more common in post-P for mm-hmm. sure, for a variety of reasons. So does anxiety play a role, you think, in, in this entity? Yeah, um, I, I don't. Um, that's another good question. I don't think we know. Um, th- this is now just starting to be studied. There's been, uh, you know, a handful of, uh, of, of kind of studies looking at, you know, ten or twenty patients here and there, and um, you know, they've reported, you know, patients have anxiety. Um, some of these patients have, uh, you know, reported a PTSD. I will tell you, um, anecdotally, I do think that um, that this is common and especially in our young otherwise healthy patients this may be their first kind of experience um, with the medical system um, you know oftentimes the PE can be life-threatening mm-hmm. um, I have a couple patients who who um, who definitely have PTSD after PE um, 
I will say, though, that uh, at least anecdotally, I think that I wouldn't say that anxiety is the major contributor in most of my patients, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly some of them. And I think actually that's where the, the cardiopulmonary exercise testing can come in. I mean, you know, some of these patients that have panic disorder, they can ha- have hyperventilation and the, the CPAP actually can help pick that up. Um, so one of the things I was wondering was in, in patients who have no underlying lung disease, um, you know, before their PE, what are the PE, what are the PFTs look like in these post-PE dyspnea patients? Are they normal? Yeah. Do they have a DLC abnormality? Yeah. So we, we don't know the answer. It, it's not been studied. So there is um, the, the focus. Uh, there's a, a group of investigators um, from Europe. Um, it's going to be, it's the focused investigators, the focused trial, and this mm-hmm. is ongoing. And I, I think we're going to have answer to that um, soon. Um, you know, Physiologically, um, unless they have pulmonary vascular disease, their you know their DL and their PFT should be normal. Um, you know, I'd say you know a lot of these patients again have comorbidities, and so they might have abnormal PFTs because of that. Um, the one thing I will say is that I've seen a number of patients with developed kind of chest wall or chest pain syndromes afterwards, um, and they will have normal lung parenchyma, but they'll have you know sometimes restricted PFTs. Sometimes, okay. All right. Fair enough. So um, one of the really nice things about your paper, Steve, uh, and very do- done very thoughtfully was your diagnostic approach to persistent dyspnea after an acute PE. And there's a very nice figure in your paper that I hope the audience will look at that outlines it. So take us through that, you know, patient comes in, he's three months or she's three months out, been on therapeutic anticoagulation and continues to have exercise intolerance and dyspnea. What do you do? What should sure. in those circumstances? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I would say that the one caveat to this is, is uh, you know, I, I tried to make this as a, a nice uh, kind of a working framework to think about this. But, you know, I, 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 I will say, I will admit that I, I don't tend to follow an algorithm for these patients, but um, I think this kind of highlights the general approach. So, um, you know, anyone who has persistent dyspnea, um, dis- despite, you know, uh, effective anticoagulation, um, should have a, uh, a workup for chronic thromboembolic pH. And by current guidelines, that includes uh, an echocardiogram. And, you know, according to guidelines, if the echocardiogram is suggestive of pulmonary hypertension, then, of course, they should get um, a VQ um, or SPEC CT, which we're using a lot more now, um, to look for evidence of uh, chronic thromboembolic disease. Um, and then from there, um, you know, if they have evidence of, of CTEF, they should have a right heart cath or just be referred to a, uh, you know, to a, a, a PH a CTEF center. So, again, this is the minority of patients. This is, uh, you know, the, the 3% of patients or 4% of patients who have PE. Um, the, the, the bulk of the patients are going to have either a normal TTE uh, or, uh, you know, a TTE with kind of subtle abnormalities, but, you know, not uh, looking like significant pulmonary hypertension. So in those patients, um, I think it's really important to right off the bat, just look for other etiologies of dyspnea. Um, and so I get, you know, PFTs, six-minute walk distance. I get EKGs, um, to, you know, to make sure they don't have arrhythmias. Um, I check some labs. You know, they're all on anticoagulation, so, you know, some of them can just be anemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I go look, I, I look at the TT carefully to look for, you know, valvular heart disease, left-sided heart disease. I'll go back and look at the CT scan, make sure there's no emphysema, make sure there's no ILD. I'll look, you know, carefully to see if there's, you know, any CT findings of, of chronic thromboembolic disease. 
So if, uh, if the TT looks good and, uh, and their kind of extended workup says, you know, listen, this person has bad COPD, then I treat that. Uh, but if kind of nothing comes up, then I, I move on to the next step. And the next step for me um, tends to be perfusion imaging, either a VQ span or a spec CT scan. And the reason I do that um, is because if the spec CT scan is normal, there's no perfusion defects, you've automatically um, excluded uh, CTAD or CTEF. Um, and then from there, I tell patients, listen, you know, your echo looks pretty good. I haven't found anything that, uh, you know, as another cause of dyspnea. Um, you have no evidence of, of residual thrombus in your, you know, in your pulmonary arteries. I think probably what's going on is you're deconditioned. And uh, why don't you... Um, you know, uh, if, if they have other comorbidities, I send them to pulmonary rehab, but a lot of these patients don't. Um, and so I tell them to, you know, start walking, exercising, and I reassess in three months um, is, is kind of my general approach. Where, where things get nuanced is if they have a, a, a TTE that looks pretty good, um, they don't have any other abnormalities um, with regard to other comorbidities, and their VQ or spec CT scan is positive, um, for those patients, um, I will generally move to a, a CPAT or, or cautery pulmonary exercise testing. Um, and the reason is, is one, um, I, you know, CPAT is, is non-invasive and it's very sensitive for pulmonary vascular disease. And so if the CPAT is normal, um, I've pretty much excluded pulmonary vascular disease. And obviously, if the CPAT shows evidence of pulmonary vascular disease, then they, you know, get right heart cath, et cetera. So I would say that's the general approach. Terrific. So two questions. Number one, just tell us a little bit about a spec CT uh, in, in case some of our audience isn't familiar with uh, or don't have access yeah. to spec CT. <laughs> sure. So the major differences between the two imaging techniques um, has to do with 2D versus 3D. So a VQ scan, both the ventilation imaging and the perfusion imaging are done uh, with planar imaging in a two-dimensional two format. The advantage of a spec VQ or spec CT scan is that in a spec CT scan, the perfusion imaging is a 3D image. And on top of that, instead of a traditional ventilation image, which would be 2D, the perfusion image is, a, is overlaid atop a standard CT scan. So the beauty about this is that if the patient has, say, any type of lung disease and there's a perfusion defect, you can look at the area of the lung parenchyma where the perfusion defect is and you can tell whether that's due to abnormal lung disease um, or whether it's probably a vascular defect. The major advantages of this are primarily for uh, surgical planning for pulmonary thromboendorectomy surgery. So I'd say in most instances, a planar VQ imaging is sufficient. Remember the negative predictive value for CTEF approaches 99%. I think the advantage that SPEC CT gives you is probably a little bit more specificity, especially in patients with uh, underlying lung disease. Thank you. And I, I appreciate your clarifying that, Steve. So yeah, sure. you know, one of the things I was thinking about is um, in going through the algorithm and going through sort of the, 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 the parts of the piece, post PE syndrome, the one thing that I, I, I still wanted to get some uh, ideas from you is how did you distinguish or how do you distinguish between CTED and post-PE-related dyspnea, since CTED patients typically don't have, you know, don't meet criteria for pulmonary hypertension. So, so is this the imaging is the distinguishing feature here? That well, 
Yeah, so so part of it is that uh, you know the you know by definition patients with CTED uh, have uh, you know evidence of pulmonary vascular disease and patients you know as I defined it uh, of post P dyspnea do not, okay. um, and so um, and you know this is often I think very challenging to distinguish the two because. Um, again, these patients who have CTED tend to have uh, either normal RV function or maybe a mildly abnormal RV function. So looking at the echo doesn't really distinguish between the two. And, and similar to the patients with post-P syndrome, they may have no pulmonary vascular disease, but they may have you know, some subtle echo abnormalities. So it really comes down to, uh, to uh, either cardiopulmonary exercise testing, looking for evidence of pulmonary vascular disease, or uh, invasive right heart cath, um, sometimes actually needing uh, to do the right heart cath exercise to look at hemodynamics with exercise. Um, the nice thing about the imaging, and that's, that's why I like to kind of use that up front, is, uh, you know, by definition, patients with CTED have to have persistent thrombus. And so if you have a patient who has a normal lung perfusion scan and they have symptoms, um, you know, by definition, they can't have uh, CTED uh, or CTEF. Um, uh, I will say, however, though, as, as I pointed out earlier, um, you still can have some persistent thrombus and have post-P syndrome. I mean, you know, again, you know, f up to 50% of patients will have residual thrombus on their CT scan, but they, they don't have pulmonary vascular disease mm -hmm. limitation. Okay. So I guess an important question is, uh, in general, should patients with PE routinely be screened for CTAF or CTE? or have clot burden reassessed at some point after um, or before they conclude their anticoagulation therapy? Yeah, so I think, um, uh, so I think that's an important question. So f the first thing I would say is that I think it's important that people who, uh, who've had a PE um, um, see a provider in follow-up that has, uh, you know, that has experience with PE. They don't, I don't think it necessarily has to be a hematologist, but, you know, a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, a vascular medicine specialist, an internal medicine doc who really, you know, knows the literature because, um, one, uh, I think there's a lot of nuances to duration of anticoagulation, types of anticoagulation. So I think that's number one. Uh, number two, um, with regard to screening, um, you know, the, uh, the answer is uh, not necessarily. So if, if at three months you feel great, you have no symptoms, you're back to normal, then you should not just get imaging studies. And, and the Europeans have published extensively on this. If you screen every single person who has a PE uh, with an echo, you get a lot of false positives um, and you end up doing a lot of unnecessary heart caths on patients that don't need them. So if you restrict that to just patients who have symptoms, um, then you're going to be a lot more uh, specific and, and sensitive in finding these patients. So how about, how about imaging though? So get a follow-up EQ scan or get a follow-up, you know, chesting a CT angiogram to, to reassess their clot burden or to a. Yeah. So I think that's commonly done. Right. I think that, uh, that the answer is we don't know what to do with the information. So, um, so, you know, there's this concept of um, residual vascular obstruction, RVO, or RVPO, residual pulmonary vascular obstruction, that's talked about in the literature. And um, so, uh, so just some kind of basic numbers for that. So if, uh, if you take all comers who have a pulmonary embolism and you do a VQ scan on them, um, and this has been looked at, you know, in a couple different studies, about half of patients 
will have some perfusion defect uh, on on perfusion scanning. If you use CT scan, that number is lower because VQ scan is more sensitive, right? And if you have evidence of a perfusion defect on CT scan, you are more likely to develop to have CTEF, and you are more likely to have recurrent VTE. Um, and so some people have actually proposed that we do that. The problem is is uh, in patients who have uh, residual perfusion defects on imaging, they are also more likely to have unprovoked clot, and we know patients with unprovoked clot are more likely to have recurrent BTE. And by definition, to have CTEF, you have to have residual clot. Mm -hmm. So I, I find them, uh, unless I'm actually looking for CTEF, um, I don't want to know if the patient has some you know, minor perfusion defect, for, for instance, in a, uh, in a provoked PE. So, so I, I do not look, and it's, okay. it's not standard of care to do scans. Okay. No, that's, that's important because that, that comes up all the time. You know, one of the yeah. rationales that it's been, that have been used to, to defend getting follow-up imaging is to quote unquote, get a new baseline. So should they have recurrent symptoms, whether you've got to try to say whether there's acute or just residual clot, but I guess at the end of the day, the clinical, the clinical story drives the treatment anyway. Um, and uh, maybe there's not a rationale to, to get a quote-unquote baseline. No, and I, I think that's important because if you look at, um, if you, for instance, compare, and, and, and again, it's not a lot of patients, it's, you know, three or 400 patients in these studies, but if you compare the predictive value of, say, residual vein, uh, residual vascular obstruction to predict subsequent VTE versus, say, whether the clot's just unprovoked. Actually, an unprovoked clot has a little bit better chance of uh, predicting recurrent VT than, than residual vein sure. obstruction. So um, do you really need the imaging? I mean, shouldn't we just be you know, putting these patients most likely on lifelong anticoagulation? Yeah, yeah fair enough, fair enough. Yep. So Steve, you alluded to exercise and maybe rehab. Any other tricks? How do you treat um, and how do you deal with these patients uh, who have post pe related dyspnea that you know, isn't due to CTEF or CTED. Any, any, any tricks yeah. or wisdom that you've gained over the last few years? Yeah. So there's a couple things. So it depends when I see them back. Um, um, you know, I think that I, I, I try to see these patients back at three months. Um, but I think, um, especially, you know, our younger, you know, healthier patients, I mean, after they have a PE, they're, they're frantic and they want to see someone as quickly as possible. Um, so some of these patients I'll see back at, you know, four or six weeks after a PE. And so already at that time, I, I kind of set the stage and I say, listen, I say, um, you know, you have a 97% chance that the clot's going to go away and you're not going to have, uh, you know, evidence of, of, of pulmonary hypertension. But a lot of patients, you know, feel shortness of breath afterwards. You know, what I recommend is, um, is you know, get out there, start exercising now, um, you know, and, uh, you know, don't be sedentary. So when I see you at three months, you know, we can have a, a good assessment. Uh, and the patients, you know, who are three, six months, whatever they out from a pulmonary embolism and have, um, you know, persistent dyspnea, and, and I can't, you know, really find, uh, you know, another etiology, um, a lot of it is, just reassurance. Um, you know, I tell them, listen, this is, you know, this is common. We see this a lot. And, you know, again, I, I either try to refer them to um, a pulmonary rehab or cardiology or, you know, cardiac rehab program if they have a qualifying diagnosis. But a lot of times they don't. And, and I just tell them to exercise and then reassess in three months. That's terrific. Uh, Steve, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a couple of things that go a little bit beyond the scope of 
of this particular paper, but I think it'll be very interesting for our audience to hear from an expert about a couple of the entities. So the first question I have is, does the CTED invariably lead to CTEF or are they distinct entities with, with different natural histories? Yeah, I, I don't think we know the answer to that because it's just not been studied. Um, the largest experience with this uh, comes uh, from the UCSD group and the um, and also the Papworth group in the UK. And you know what what I think their belief is in general that uh, that CTED uh, chronic thromboembolic disease is not progressive. These patients tend not to have RV dysfunction. Um, and uh, and tend to kind of stay where they're at, uh, but there's not been any kind of that's, that's anecdotal experience. There's not yeah. really been any kind of long-term mm-hmm. studies. Um, you know, obviously there you know from there is a natural progression from the time you have acute PE to develop CTEF that um, you know you will develop pulmonary vascular remodeling, and there will be probably some you know transition between acute PE to CTEF where you will have CTED. But I think once the patients come to you know, seek medical attention for dyspnea per se, uh, you know, my impression and experience is that these are not, um, not necessarily progressive. Okay. Um, that's as opposed to patients who have CTEF, um, you know, an untreated, you know, we, we definitely think that's a progressive disease in most patients. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit uh, about the treatment of those other entities. So, so treatments of CTED, and then I know it gets complicated uh, with CTEF, but I think our audience would benefit from your wisdom about what kinds of things they should be talking yeah. about. So, so I, I think CTEF is, is easy. I mean, we have guidelines for this. Um, and, you know, what I try to, you know, stress um, to other providers is, you know, CTEF is, is really one of the only curable forms of pulmonary hypertension. You know, over two-thirds of patients um, at specialized centers are candidates for surgery. And so I think the first thing is determining, are they a surgical candidate, yes or no? And if they're a surgical candidate, um, then they should have surgery um, because you have the, a good potential to cure them and have no symptoms and need really nothing but lifelong anticoagulation. Um, and, and in the patients that aren't, you know, surgical candidates, um, there's other options like medical therapies and, you know, balloon pulmonary angioplasty uh, in, in combination with medical therapies. So the CTED group is is the most interesting. I think there's not um, there's not not a lot published on this. Um, you know, these patients certainly many of these patients have surgically accessible clot, um, and they have pulmonary vascular disease limitation. A lot of these patients have really high dead space as well, and so this contributes to dyspnea. And the nice thing about these patients is most of them have. Um, you know, normal RV function. So from an operative risk standpoint, their, their operative risk is much lower than the patients with a severe CTEF. And now both the UCSD, um, excuse me, now both the Papworth group and the, the group um, in, in Hanover has kind of published their experience with this and, and patients, um, you know, you know, the risk of uh, mortality is low, the patients feel better. So I think more and more centers are now operating on, you know, patients who have surgically accessible disease with CTED as well. Um, as with regard to medical therapies, we, we don't know anything about uh, medical therapies in these patients. Um, you know, I think there, there may be some potential benefit, but that's mm-hmm. yet to be studied. And, and it goes without saying that lifelong anticoagulation is 
is the standard treatment it, for C TED as well. Of course, of course, yep. And and in fact, if and we know that if you have actual surgery and you stop taking your anticoagulation, um, you know, it's it's very likely that it's going to come back. So that is, um, you know, can't stress that enough. Great. So Steve, we start off with the question: Post PE syndrome, real or a ruse? So what's your answer to your own question? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I would say uh, it's both. So we, we know that these patients' uh, symptoms are real, um, but I would say I think it's a, a ruse to actually think we understand what's going on uh, in these patients. And I think, um, you know, once we have epidemiologic data and functional data in a lot more patients, I think we're going to have a better understanding of what's going on. Terrific. Steve, any last thoughts or comments or any other things that we should have covered that, uh, that our audience would, uh, would like to hear or would need to hear? No, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's, uh, that's really about um, it. Um, well, I got to tell you, this was, this was terrific. I mean, I think uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and I think you and I have talked about this privately, you know, um, treating acute PEs, and, and it's Aquella are really among the most challenging clinical entities. Uh, and the thing that scares me, I think more than, more than anything else. So I think uh, hearing uh, some of your comments on this and some of your thoughts on this are certainly gonna be helpful to me uh, moving forward. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to participate in the podcast. And to our audience, I hope that you enjoyed this discussion about the post-P syndrome as much as, uh, as I did. So until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for listening.